This week on the In-Depth Podcast, we're branching out into music again. Last time it was Ice Cube, this time one of the world's most prominent music DJs, Steve Aoki. We spent a full day with Aoki, who took us on a tour of his Las Vegas home, dubbed the Aoki Playhouse. It lived up to its name. He showed us around his home studio, gave us a glimpse of his rare Pokemon and baseball card collection, and I make a jump from the rooftop into his pool. You can check out all that at youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. And if you don't think DJing is athletic, think again. Aoki takes the stage 250 times a year, so he's training year-round to stay in shape and put on his signature shows. During our nearly two-and-a-half-hour chat, Aoki gets emotional when reflecting on his career. Love what you're doing, where you're at. Because after that moment's gone, it's gone. Plus, he discusses a nerve-wracking, card-collecting moment. I um, spent an enormous amount of money on buying a raw Pokemon card on a Japanese auction that could be a fake card. And I actually forked over $420,000. And a remix with Kanye and Drake he wishes he could redo. It never actually ever came out because it just wasn't that good. The son of restaurant chain Benihana founder, Steve also shares how his father's death sent him on a journey of learning about the human body. The end goal is finding a way to live forever. And that sounds kind of scary and crazy when you say that. But we begin with the racism Aoki encountered growing up in Newport Beach, California. So I wanted to start by taking you back to when you were a kid growing up. First, loved your book. Uh, and you opened up about a lot of stuff in, in the book. And I want to read a, a quote to you because, you know, you were given a real hard time growing up by your peers. You wrote, you grew up eating this f***ed up food, looking oddly different, always out of place. And you convinced yourself the girls in your class won't like you because you have slanted eyes and your hair is not blonde and you start to feel separate. You move around like you are somehow other or less than. Elaborate uh, on that if you don't mind. This is how I felt at that age. So it's different when I say up food, I'm talking about my own food. I, I was not proud of my culture. I felt like I shouldn't be. And kids know. said you were eating worms. First of all, you bring a rice ball to school and you know, in a class that just doesn't understand what that food looks like. I'm like, mom, why do you do that to me? <laughs> they were like, I can't eat this, like, I have to eat this in private because I love, like, that's, I grew up eating this food. And um, Newport Beach, it's 96% white. Um, it's, it's very conservative. And kids growing up in that climate, they just don't have a filter. And if they don't get checked or they don't have education on what, you know, the, the underrepresented uh, are experiencing, they might not even realize what kind of effect it has on other people. I was talking to your sister, Kana. She recalls when you were on the playground that you were talking to the ants. How did that feeling of like not belonging, you think, come out in you back then? Like the, the group I was in was, uh, the class I was in was, there's only two other guys and it was like all girls. All I want to do is, is like be like the two guys and be friends with them. But they definitely, definitely did not want me in there. I wanted to, to, to be accepted into their world. I remember following them and doing whatever they did. And they were really into bird watching. And I would like go, oh, that's what they're doing. That's what like, the guys are doing. I got to do that too. And I remember like going backyard and like going, mom, I'm really into birds. They're like, why are you into birds? Just, I don't know. It's just funny. I, 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 you know, 
looking back at what it felt like at that time and just wanting to fit in with these guys. And what happened where you were almost uh, expelled once? I actually befriended this one, one kid. We were really close and uh, we hang out all the time. And he, he like befriended another friend and uh, that guy did not like me at all. I ride my bike over to his house and he's just like, I'm like feeling things like being thrown at me behind a bush. And, um, and then I hear like the racial epithets, just like everything I'm like, and I realize it's my friend. And I remember like, so confused why that was happening. And I was crying and I just didn't understand. Like I had, I brought back his glasses. Like I was borrowing his glasses. So I go, when well, I broke his glasses, I was so angry and I threw it in the trash. And then on the next day I confronted him. I'm like, like what, like what happened? And then his friend was there the guy doesn't like me. And then they were just saying all kinds of stuff again. And then we got into a fight. And that was my first like fight, physical fight. And there's a playground and like all these people were like, you know, surrounding us. They're like, fight. They're like, like encouraging the fight. And we got into it and I beat him up. <laughs> I, I felt bad though. Like I just like was so scared. I just ran and hid in a bush. It bothers you even now, talking yeah, about Yeah, I, I just remember like hiding in the bush and it makes me feel like that's the culture I live in. It's normal. Like Asians in that environment, we're, we are like not, we are, we are subpar. And that's what I, I consider myself at that point. I'm like, I'm not at the same level. Um, and that's just how it is. It's just sad to see that. I got like suspended or whatever from school. And then I, I came back to school and I, I, I saw him, his friend, riding his bike in front of me. I was like, yo, what's up? Like, and he just like took off. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, wow, he didn't say anything bad. And he took off and he tried to hop the curb and I don't know if it's karma or something, but his front wheel like came off the spoke and then he just like rolled over his bike and I'm like, oh my God. I just couldn't believe that happened right at that moment. Didn't your mom in some of these situations like want you to apologize? She's like, doesn't want to rock the boat. She doesn't want to cause stir. She's just like, like Jap the Japanese culture is keep your head down and just keep moving. Let's just not cause a scene. Like, sorry, we're sorry, you know, please leave us alone kind of thing. Like, you know, growing up there uh, as any sort of minority, you're going to have some level of discrimination. In high school, I still like dealt with just, just dumb racism, you know, and like ignorance. Of course, you deal with that. When you're a kid, it's harder to understand that. And you don't know who to turn to. But in high school, that's when I was lucky to find music because the scene that I got involved in, like the kids I was hanging out with, they're all like either bullied or like outcasted or like, they're not Asian, but, they're, they, but we have the same kind of understanding of like, hey, we don't fit in anywhere. So we'll fit in together. And we'll give you, we'll allow you to give you a voice so you can, you know, find the courage to like, just be you. How did you find music helped? Music, yeah, was my source to express myself and to learn who I am and to be proud of, because I was, I was so like ashamed, like my face, my eyes, like my, like I'm Japanese. I just like, 
I had a lot of shame in that. And then like later on, I felt guilty about it. And then I was like, I got to reclaim that. I got to own this because it is who I am. It's like, I want to be proud of that, you know? And so I'd be able, I was able to find that through music and the, the empowerment around the people that were like allowing me to just be me. Tell about the full drum kit in Jessica's front lawn. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, when you're a kid, like. Creative ways to pick up girls. Yeah, yeah, like, I, you know, I, like, I'm, I definitely was not good at, at picking up girls for sure. When I got to that age where I'm like, oh, man, I really like girls now. Like, I don't know how to express this. And, you know, there's a girl, there's one girl, and she was in my neighborhood. And, uh, and they're like, okay, like, this is going to be kind of like that scene in, like, John Cusack where he has the boombox over his head in front of the, the girl's house. But, like, I have my drum set. So I, like, I'll, like put it, like, right on the... Uh, the front lawn of her of her house at like I don't know it's like midnight or something <laughs> and I'm like I just started banging on the drums until the lights on the house went on so that she could see me like playing drums and uh like the family was not happy they were, they, were they, they like ran out I'm like oh my god we gotta grab the drums like, like like you know yelling at me and I'm like I grabbed the drums and I ran into the car with my friends and we just took off but that was yeah, that was just just dumb did she ever say anything to you um, I don't know what happened after. I think she started laughing about it. She's she was like a she's like a f like good natured girl. She's you know, uh, but like there's nothing ever came of it. Yeah, I kind of just like was. I, I walked away with my head like you know down and like was like okay that didn't work. How about your best memory from K Juice? Oh my God, K Juice! Yeah, it was my first time actually being a DJ. Maybe one or two people were listening. Like literally at UC Santa Barbara, there's the radio station for the college students, and K Juice is like for when you started out, before you become a real radio DJ. I never ever became a real radio DJ. I I lived in K Juice land, where like it's only played into like the library, <laughs> and who's gonna listen to the K Juice in the library? Yeah, right. Because I had all, all these records. I started collecting all this vinyl, and I would play these records and I was really playing for myself and try to find out if anyone was listening. And um, yeah, I would like go to the public library and be like, yo, you listen to K-Juice? <laughs> just randomly ask people. And they'd be like, what's that? Like no one knew what it was. So your best buddy Dan told me you almost started DJing out of necessity initially because you just needed money. Um, you were going under the name DJ Kid Millionaire and you said you were screwing up a ton initially. Uh, yeah. How so? I was sucked as a DJ then. Like, I could barely mix. I was horrible. But I, I'm surprised they even let me DJ. I'm like, I'm like why were you? <laughs> I mean, I was like train wrecking a lot because I didn't have a set. I would have to practice at the gig. I didn't have turntables at my, at my apartment. Um, so I would practice before I would show up for like an hour or two so I could learn how to beat match before every gig. The name, DJ Kid Millionaire, people always ask, like, where'd that come from? I was playing this record, Millionaire, and there, there was an MC that came up, yo, I'm like, let me MC for you. He's like, what's your name? What's your DJ name? And I was playing Millionaire uh, by Khalees, and there's a line right when I was playing where, where Andre, Andre 3000 says, mama, I'm a millionaire. So I said, I'm mama millionaire. And he's like, you're not a girl. Like, you should be papa billionaire. 
so this is live, like he's live talking to me right now, like while I'm DJing. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I'm like, Papa Billionaire? That's weird, that sounds old. Call me Kid Millionaire. You know, and that's really where it came. It's like, yo, we got DJ Kid Millionaire. I'm like, whoa, that sounds actually pretty cool. I'm gonna go with that one. And you were doing gigs where somebody'd pay you $50, but then th they thought you were so bad that they'd let you come back, but they were gonna pay you less. Oh yeah, that time. happened yeah. a lot of times. I mean, I, I, I was lucky to even get paid. And then one gig I played, most of the time I was playing for free, just because I, I needed to get my head in the door. I would be bringing in equipment, it would cost like, like $100, I'd have rent it, and then they'd pay me 50 bucks. I'm like, yo, God, I'm losing money. Right. I'm thinking for four hours for you, and I'm like, I'm like literally out at 50 bucks. Can I, can I get 100 next time? He's like, no, I'm gonna pay you 40 next time. I mean, it was like, I don't know. It was okay, you know, I'm like, 40? I have to pay $60? Like, I can't do this. This is not sustainable for me. Right. You know, because I was like, I was looking for anywhere to play. And it, that's just how it was at that time, you know? Playing for 20 people is actually, is, was great. Because when I was in bands, playing for 20 people was, a, was like a sold out living room. Your first time you played in front of people in a band, you wouldn't look anybody in the eye and like your friend. Yeah, uh, but there's, there's, there's like literally, yeah. there's more people here than like the shows I was playing. Yeah. I was playing in front of like five to 10 people. Right. You know, so it's hard to look at five people in the eye. <laughs> They're like, they feel uncomfortable already. I want to talk to you a little bit about the brain. Um, how did your father's death send you on this kind of journey figuring out the human body? Yeah, so I, when my father passed away in 2008, um, that was the first time I really dealt with a death so close to me, and that was really hard. Um, I mean, we all were there in the hospital room when he passed away. It gave me a lot of closure, but it also opened a lot of doors for me. Up until he died, I didn't really believe that he could die because my father was this invincible adventurer that literally survived more than nine lives. Even to the point when the doctor was saying, you know, we've now pronounced him gone. I'm like, there's no way he's gone. I just, my mind couldn't actually believe that he would actually leave. But yeah, after he passed away, um, I just had a lot of questions on like what, like what, what killed him? Like what is cancer, you know? Like how do you prevent that? And like, and what if I did this? And a lot of the what ifs now came to the people I could potentially save at that moment forward, which is people I love, my mom, my, my family, my sister, my brother. So like after he died, I picked up this book called Anti-Cancer. It was all about, it's all Eastern philosophy. You know, it's more about prevent, prevention and preventative uh, philosophy. And I read all his other books that he wrote, this, this, this great doctor, actually I wrote to him. And I, I did that a lot. You know, if I read a book, I would write to the authors and I would like to try to build a relationship with them and try to like learn from them and and like learn more about what I can do to share this information with people I care about. And if it's to, to help you to live a longer, healthier, happier life, like I would need to read more. I need to learn more about that. And, and that led me down this path of, into nutrition, into mindfulness, and then into what I got really excited about, this world of science fiction and between science fact. So I think that the ideas that like, especially um, people like Elon Musk and, and scientists out there that are really advancing the science, those are the people I wanna know, learn and like talk to. 
Brian Johnson, for example, he's the head of Kernel. He has a leading brain technology in the world. And I got to meet with him. Those people mean what as it pertains to what you're doing on the philanthropic front? Yeah, so I have a foundation, Aoki Foundation, and it's exactly this idea to, to like learn and share. And part of the sharing is funding. We're very broad when it comes to funding in the brain category. We've been doing stuff with Alzheimer's and dementia, and my passion is in what's in the future with brain technology. Where can we go to not only just optimize our lives and advance what we can do uh, with our output, with our creativity, but you know the end goal is finding a way to live forever. And that sounds kind of scary and crazy when you say that, but it's not scary and crazy when you actually start inching what that looks like. My mom's 78. I want to see her live to 120. I always say, mom, you have another 50 more years left, you know? And I want to see her live a happy, healthy life to that point. She was telling me the other day about how you've wanted for a while uh, for her to commit to freezing her brain. And she's like, I, I, I don't want to do it. Your sister said the same thing, but explain where the Alcor Life Foundation yeah, comes so in. Alcor, Alcor uh, is a um, facility that deep freezes your body. You die, okay? So you're f like Kelvin temperature, deep, 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 cold Kelvin temperature, frozen with zero degeneration. If I'm so lucky to die in a hospital situation where they can move my whole body and quickly get my body, my brain, most importantly, into this deep Kelvin temperature. And when the technology is ready to bring me back, which I mean, sounds crazy, but if there's technology to, to actually bring you back, then I can come back. But you know, it's like the, the sad thing is I don't want to come back and like my whole family's gone, you know? That's why I'm asking my whole family, let's at least all do it together, you know? Look at it this way. People die, right? People have died and come back to life. Can you, can you agree with me on that? Yeah, sure. Like your heart stops and you, and they come back like, whoa, you were actually technically dead for a minute or two minutes, whatnot. So there's a potential where if my brain gets to this temperature where it's like frozen, if I was to come back, it's, a, it's almost very similar technically as if I was out for three minutes. So. That's where I'm like, where people are like, well, that's just weird. But it's not weird to bring someone back to life if they're, they die and they just come right back in three minutes, right? I mean, at the end of the day, all this stuff, all these organs, your skin, your body, they're all gonna fail. It's like, we're all gonna degenerate over time. But imagine, and we're already doing this. That's the thing, people don't get it. We're already doing this. We're doing heart transplants. We're doing organ transplants. When it fails and you have a life, if you say, hey, do you want to get like a clean liver to live? I I'm assuming most people would say yes, so, so they can continue living. Right. In our life lifetime, like which is zero to 80, right? There's gonna be a point in time where the normal lifespan might be zero to 160. So at like 140, they're like, hey, everything's working good because we've, we've, we've changed out everything in your body now. 
Like, we have a different heart, and it's actually not even human. It's like an AI or whatever heart. These are all steps to what I believe in the future will eventually get to the point where we can, where we, we might potentially live forever in a lifetime and have that conversation be like, wow, people used to actually die. That's like, that, that's, that's possible. And I, and I hope it's in our life, lifetime. So with the foundation, I want to help out researchers and orgs and people that have that same thought process that are doing real work. We got to find cures for all brain degenerative disease, period, one. Two, we got to find avenues that, that lead to the place where we can do what I'm saying. Live longer, healthier, happier lives to the point where we can live forever. COVID, I understand kind of a tough transition for you because you go from literally being yanked off what was then your biggest tour ever to, you know, coming back here and everything's that comes to a grinding halt like it is for everybody. But how hard of a transition was that for you initially? I didn't believe it would last this long. I read Yuval Harari's book. He's also my favorite author. He's also on my album too. I reached out to him. He wrote this book called Sapiens and Homo Deus. When it comes to disease, basically what he says in the future or now moving forward, it's pretty much eradicated because we have all the technology and science. When I read that book and when I heard about COVID, I'm like, It'll be controlled. So I thought like they would, it would end pretty quickly. I was very hopeful of that. So with that in mind, I'm like, we're gonna be back on the road in June, you know? And like, I live on the road. I do 250 shows a year for 15 years straight. So I was kind of setting up for that, you know? And I dropped my album during COVID. I remember I was like, okay, I'm back home. Okay, we're gonna do 15 days of Aoki boot camp to my album drops. And I was like working out, working out, working out. And I'm like, Okay. You got like eight or nine percent body fat. There, yeah, I yeah. I was you. I was like very disciplined at that moment, and then, um, and then you know, the album drops. I'm like, okay, we gotta like support the album somehow because the, the tour got canceled. So we're like, okay, in June, like, 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 you know, what's gonna happen? Like, we gotta reschedule the tour, and um, I'm like, I'm gonna be on the road again. So guess what has to happen? I need to use this time wisely and make music. I'm gonna work in the studio, I'm gonna crank out music. So I was just like in the studio, boom, 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 boom. And then like a few months goes by and I'm like, there's no shows lined up. I'm like, what's going on? I was just burnt out. I was burnt out. And I was like, oh man, oh, I can't, I, I was just like, I'm just like, I, 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 like every day. You can't, you can't do that every day after a while. You know, you need to take breaks. And that's why I liked my life before. I was like on the road, studio, on the road, studio. Now I'm just straight studio. Um, but I got a lot of music done, and was there a low point for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't really have like low points like that. Like, I luckily built my dream home that was like meant for a pandemic. Yeah, I don't really need to leave my house, so we kept a very very tight ship here. Like we we're always, you know, testing people as they come in and stuff like that. I've even got this crazy COVID door you have to like walk through. Like it's like sprayed down. <laughs> I mean, we never actually use it, but I got the door. Like I was like prepared, like they're gonna get sprayed down. They're gonna get tested like the whole nine yards. How did you go about figuring out 
when to get back into touring again? Because I know at some point during the pandemic, you took some heat for doing a show. I, I would imagine you're between a rock and a hard place because you want to get back going with your you know, career and what you love while also trying to figure out how to be conscious of what's going on. Right, yeah. The only place that's really open right now is the United States. It's, uh, the shows are back, doing what, four shows a week now. So it's Vegas, my residency is open. I'm playing every weekend here. I got vaccinated as early as I possibly could. And after the vaccination, I just felt, I felt a lot safer. And, and then I also follow statistics. I don't follow TikTok conspiracy theories. And that's what I try to tell people, like, look at the statistics. When people got vaccinated, the COVID numbers just were dropping drastically, like majorly. Follow the numbers, follow the statistics. The vaccines are working in a way that we can live our lives. You hear about the Delta variant and you hear about these new strains and that does worry me, it does bother me. Of course it does because it is affecting people that are vaccinated. If there's a booster, I'm in, yeah. I'm gonna do it. I'm, I'm playing these shows already. You know, so I, I, it's like, it's a responsibility that I, I, I need to take. I think entertainers in general should, should think about that more often, you know? Did I read you spent 10 or $12 million during the pandemic on I don't know if cards? I should put that out to the world. Let's just say that I went in heavy and I had a lot of time and it just like, it was, it was like, I was day and night on eBay. I was on, on the auctions. I just was like full bore into card collecting. That's the thing during COVID is that it happened to so many people around the world. Nostalgia, going back to things that you love to do when you were a kid. I just remember like, like going to the card shop and buying a pack of cards with my friends and, and being so jealous of my friend that had like 10 Kenton Griffey Jr. rookie cards in his binder, 10 Barry Sanders rookie cards in his binder, and Michael Jordan's up the wazoo, and I'm like, I just got one Jordan. I got one Daryl Strawberry rookie. I got like, I just have like a, like a pitiful collection to my friends. And I'm like, well, I have money now. I could actually buy some cards, you know? And you ramped that up pretty quickly. I did, because yeah. I am also an investor. And I'm like, okay, this is gonna be another alternative investment. And so I treated it like that, and went in and bought like cards I knew and I loved. Michael Jordan rookie card, Mickey Mantle rookie card, Jackie Robinson's uh, rookie card. Um, so yeah, I put serious money in and, and then I got into Pokemon and I'm like, okay, I gotta just go for the grails. So I went in and I, and I spent enormous amount of money on buying a raw Pokemon card on a Japanese auction that could be a fake card, could be damaged, could be a lot of things, a lot of coulds. And I actually forked over $420,000. It, it was so scary, but I was like, that is the holiest, holy grail of the biggest IP in, in its space. How did it work out? It worked out beautifully, but it was very scary. So I got the card and had it float, they flew it over and I graded it the next day, the next morning went to PSA. I got it graded, graded PSA nine. Whew. Whew. I made an investment on that PSA nine with the Aoki collection pedigree on the actual slab. There's only a few cards with that. And people care about the premium on that, you know? 
So with that, if I ever do sell it, I wouldn't sell it for under, you know, $2.53 million. Can you believe like this card you're holding in your hand at this size has that much value? No, not at all. And I bet a year and a half ago, you would have never thought that either, right? Yeah, no, I wouldn't have. I, of course not. This is the most sought after rare, rarest Pokemon card in existence. It's a Pikachu Illustrator card. I think there's only like 40 of these made and they're only given out to certain people. This card right here is, uh, this is my, my, my rookie set with tops. So I did a set with tops, a baseball set, and this is the one of one Steve Aoki uh, concert worn jean. Um, and then it's, it's one of one, it's gold. How cool is that? Yeah, that... I know, it's cool. And I, and I had to buy it online. I, had to buy, <laughs> I bought it on eBay. Are you serious? For like five grand. And if, luckily someone was selling it on eBay and I was like, I need to buy that. And then probably the most iconic card of sports, the Michael Jordan rookie card. And a 10. And a PSA 10. There's only over 300 some odd numbered uh, PSA 10s out there in existence. It just recently sold for over $800,000. <laughs> it just sold for that number. I got it for 85 grand. I've, I got two of these for 85,000. And, uh, and then this, and I, I, we made one with the Aoki collection. I know PSA, they, they, they decided to give me a whole pedigree with the Aoki collection because I have some grails. You think you'll keep all, all of these or do, will you exchange some for others? I mean, who and... knows? Like I, so what I'm doing right now is I believe that the future of collectibles will be digital. Digital collectibles, NFTs, that's the future. And we're early. Whoever's going into that is early. And it's, it is a wild ride, you know, ups and downs. What I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be minting NFTs of all my grail cards. Hmm. I'm going to be putting them up on this platform called Diggable, where people can view my collection. And some might be for sale, and some might never be for sale. And people can own my collection, part of the Aoki collection, because there's only one, two, three... LeBron James rookie card, four, the Charizard first edition, five, uh, this is the first Aoki's card house PSA 10, which is another pedigree we made that designates to what we do here, breaking live at Aoki's card house at the, at the playhouse. The Kobe Bryant Topps Chrome rookie card, another GOAT, all PSA 10, and the Mike Trout PSA 10, Aoki collection. So you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, only in the Aoki collection. What you got these for and what you think each are worth now would be what? Okay, so let's, let's go into that. So uh, LeBron James, I got this for like 10, and I think it sits around 15 or 20. It, the market went up to 40 on this card. The Charizard PSA 10, um, this pop, pop of like 120 some odd uh, of these in existence. I bought this for 170 grand, and this sits at about 350. The Kobe Bryant Topps Chrome PSA 10. I think I spent like probably around 40 grand for this card, and it sits around that same price. Okay. And the Mike Trout uh, PSA 10. This card probably is around anywhere between like six and 10 grand. Okay. And I think I paid around that same amount. I have some cards that are not graded that are in full sets. Because as collectors, you collect sets. Right. I collect sets. So it's gonna be hard for me to grade all these, but there's tens of thousands of these cards now. I have the full Marvel catalog of cards. I mean, we're, we're talking like every single year, full collection of Marvel. Most number of shows you've ever done in a month? 
I know I've, there's, I've done 32. How about in a year? Over 300. D describe the feeling of just, as you put it, uh, being tired, lonely, and slapped around by the road. The road is not, it's like, it looks fun. The pictures, social media, it tells one side of the story. I'm not gonna put me in the shower like, you know, like crying or something, <laughs> my yeah. story. Um, it doesn't happen. Like that happened at certain parts of, of, of tour life, you know, just, you know, but it's also like, you have to like, it's all mindset. You have to show up and you have to put on your best face every single night. You have to be able to mask any of the issues personal that you're going through and you gotta entertain them. And that, that's, that's very hard for a lot of people. I wanna read a few different quotes from your book and kind of get your reaction to each, but you wrote, I am alone. I mean, I live in a big house, play to big crowds, live a big full life, but end of the day, it sometimes feels my life is empty. Explain that. I didn't know we were gonna do a therapy session today. <laughs> I wrote this book it's almost in a way that I didn't have to explain these things. You know, I'm like, you wanna know about it? Just read the book. There's a point where in those moments of, of loneliness and sadness, I, I made a decision. I did it instead of being at home and having, you know, potentially a family. Uh, like kids running around. I chose this life and I'm on the road a lot. So like whoever, whoever I end up dating or whoever becomes part of my life, it's a very like, they, it's a specialized life. It's only meant for a certain kind of person to be able to, to live like this, you know? When I was talking to your mom and sister, that was the one time in, in the call that both of them got emotional, talking about your schedule and kind of the impact it has. I don't like them feeling that way. You know, I don't want them to be, because my mom, she's like my emotion, she's like my emotional support system. So if like, if I feel sad, she'll, she'll feel like 10 times more sad. Like for me, I need to keep them happy and, and healthy. You know, they're my rock. So, yeah, it's you know, it's a it's it's not a, it's not a normal life. You said on the topic in your book, and you were like raw and seemed to be brutally honest in it. Um, in the movie of my life that's been playing in my head since I was a kid, I always have a family. I'm a father, and yet in my reality, it should have happened for me by now. You still feel that way? Sometimes. You know, we, we all daydream, you know? And I definitely want to have kids. There's, def there's no doubt about it, it's gonna happen. But um, I'm a realist too. So I'm gonna let my instincts run the course of that instead of preparing already, you know? So if I ever have a kid in the future, like it will do what, I'll do what I'm supposed to do. It seems like, like the, those that are closest to you you know, want to see f for your own sake for you to ease up on the schedule some. But on the other hand, you've worked your entire life to get to the point where, you know, you're at the top of your profession. I really am so lucky 
when I'm on the stage, when I'm playing, there's no greater high that I can experience in my life. It is the absolute pinnacle. Drugs cannot reach the high that I'm getting. I am completely sober. I don't drink before shows. I don't do any drugs. I let the moment and the real raw connection I'm having bring me to that level. It's strangers, people I don't know that I'm connecting with in a very intimate way, in a really raw way. When you see someone like crying in the crowd and they're singing their, your song and they're in this moment of full like freedom and to connect with that at that moment gives me chills down my spine. That is my ultimate high. And I'm so lucky to do what I do. And at some point in time, I won't be able to do it anymore. Just recently in Newport Beach, I was like bawling my eyes out. It, playing. Why? Just like, you know, you just go down the, the web hole of like how every moment matters. And it makes me think about my mom. Every moment with her matters. It makes me think about my friends that have passed away. And those moments matter because when they're gone, they're gone forever. So you better fucking, you better just give 100% love what you're doing, where you're at. Because after that moment's gone, it's gone. What about it uh, touches you so much now? Because I have people in my life that have gone away that I love. And I miss them so much. When you were up there in Newport Beach, recently is, do you start thinking of? I think about my best friend that passed away last year, who gave his entire life to support me. Every moment you have with people you care about, you better give me your 100% of your time. And there all the times when I didn't, I feel awful. Life is short because it goes so fast. It goes so fast, and then it's, and it's gone, and people go away forever. And then you have just those moments. So you just gotta give 100%. Have you found is you've gotten older and, you know, been, been in the profession for longer, you start to think about that more? Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt that as I've been doing this longer, you gain more wisdom and into why. Why do you do all this? I do sacrifice time with the people I care about and I love, and that sucks. That's a really big sacrifice. But, you know, just having, like, some of the closest people in my life close to me, it's really, really special to me, and I'm really happy about that. So, um... I hope I have a long career with it, you know. I, I, there's, no, there's no expiration date. I love making music. I love, I love performing. I'm just going to continue doing what I love to do.
in order to do what I do at the level I'm doing that, you have to train yourself, your mind, your body, your spirit, your mental state like an athlete. I'm training for a, a perpetual competition all year long. And so when I do that, you have to prioritize certain things and sacrifice certain things in order to have the stamina and the endurance and the energy to put the 100% in there. So for me, as an athlete, because I consider myself an athlete, mindfulness, meditation, you know, the ice bath, certain things I prioritize. I have two ice baths here. I like, you know, like that's the thing about, I'll put my money where that is. These things are really important to me. So I, I, I do them on a regular basis. So I'm like constantly at my peak performance. And you know, I'm, I'm 43 now. So like, you know, if some of my joints and limbs are like having issues and I, I'm, you know, just doing what I can to make sure that like I'm, I'm at, at as optimal as I can so I can perform at, at, at that level. And that, that requires, you know, not partying, you know. I don't do drugs. Never actually really did them. I, you know, I, I had one acid trip when I was 13, and uh, I drank every show for a period of time, and then I stopped. And I still drink to celebrate, yeah. to taste, to enjoy. But I, if anything, I, I hate to say it, and it's going to be cheesy, but I drink responsibly. <laughs> How do you think success affects you? Success is... Uh, is a very subjective word. I mean, most people, when they think of success, they think about money. Like, how much money did you make? That is absolutely not the right way to think about success. Success is how you feel about yourself. And success doesn't have to be this grand moment in your life because that just doesn't happen. There's no grand moment. They're all little moments. I think success, it's like, at the end of the day, it's what you make of it. For me, it's just, it's... It's just, you know, finding happiness within yourself. What lesson do you think you learned from your arcade fire experience back in the day? That's what I was too big for my britches. Dimock was, we were, we were doing really well. Like we, as a label, we were, we were the indie label that all the majors were looking at because we would find artists and they would blow up. And um, we were on a roll. Like, we were just, like, consistent. And um, RK Fire, they, they were uh, primed to release their new album, Funeral, the first album, Funeral. Didn't, I never even met them, never even talked to them. I was talking to their lawyer. And the lawyer was like, hey, we have this EP. You can just drop it because, I mean, that's what we did. We put out EPs. And then a big label would come in and do the album. I'm like, I, I, I need the album. It's like, the album's already signed. You, you can't have the album. I'm like, I need the album, and then I'll do the EP. And obviously she's like, no. <laughs> so, so she passed on, on, on that. And I missed the opportunity to release the No Cars Go EP, which I, it was in my lap. Like, I'm just being so dumb about it, stubborn. And so, like, egotistical. Like, thought that, I, you know, like, I can get the album. Like, no, I can't. I can't. I wouldn't. 
And the takeaway from that after the fact was, was what? I mean, after that, I was just like, I was just putting out every EP. Yeah. I was like, I can't be like that. That's just like, I missed out on a, like a massive opportunity for, for Dimock. Even if like, like, at the end of the day, it's not like we're, our bank account was just blowing up. And it wasn't about money for me at that time for Dimock because all the money that, that would come in, it would literally get spent. And at that time, where we were crushing and signing these artists that were doing so well and we're actually selling lots of records, even at that time, I was still negative like $100,000 in debt because I did not know how to run my business. We have like, we're like, we've sold like, you know, 10 credit cards, like completely maxed out. And, and, and then I was like, I might have to fold Dimmock. I mean, at some point, like I was getting, I was trying to get an 11th credit card. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> literally I was like on my, like the end of the line and I'm, and every label's looking at us like we're like this golden touch. It was like a crazy scenario for me because we were crushing it and yet we're completely in debt. And I was like, there's no way I could pull myself out of this. There's no financial way that Dimma can actually get out of this hole right now. And then I was DJing on the side and those $200 shows actually meant something. I paid off all the interest, I paid off all the debt, all from DJing. That was like the best feeling ever, holy Never forget that. What about the skills you lack and how you try and compensate for that with people on your team that you Yeah, have? so that's that's an important thing as, 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 a, as a boss, is understanding where your skills lie and where your weaknesses are. Having a great team around you is so important to give the task to the right person that, that they not only are good at, but they, they want to do. You want to bring on people that like care about what they do. I got... It's a great team all across the board, like, you know, from touring, from my, my life here in my house, uh, from the music side, from all my investment sides, all the different businesses I have, the fashion label. Uh, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. It's, it's, it's like an octopus, just tentacles out of, of um, verticals of business. Michael Jackson. How well do you remember seeing him for the first time in third grade? That was my very first concert that I've ever seen, and it was raining. I remember we had an umbrella, and we had binoculars, and we were like looking out and seeing Michael Jackson is like, you know, a sparkly jacket. I remember coming home, you're a kid, you just like reenact what you see and what you love, and I love Michael Jackson, so I would like try to do the moonwalk, you know, wear a glove in my hand, one glove in my hand, you know. How do you think he influenced you? It was more of the, more of that, the, not necessarily his voice so much about, but more about his presence. You know, his music videos, that live show, being on stage. The bar was too high for me to imagine me being on that stage. So I'm not ever going like, yes, I want to be on that stage too. I, that's not the way I think. I'm not like, even when I was a DJ, I'm like, I want to be the biggest DJ in the world. Like, instead of doing that kind of moonshot, which I think a lot of people, actually, it's great advice for people. Do the moonshot. That's not how I'd live my life. Focus on the people in front of me, whether it's three people or 3,000. You know, that's how I, I, how, I, how I can see myself getting to the stage of being on the stage, being maybe on the level, not on the level, but me being, maybe potentially on the same stage that Michael Jackson would perform on. And I think also is pop sensibility unconsciously has a big effect on 
you know, on me as a songwriter and as a producer. The hooks are what really sink in, you know, and, and Michael Jackson was a hook, hook guy. He was a hook master. And shortly after his death, you work with Motown on a Jackson 5 remix, but then a few years after that, you work with Sony and you have the entire Michael Jackson catalog to work with. Take me through the process of doing that remix and then finding out it was lacking the wow factor. This was a big deal at the time because I was still very early with my production skills. But I definitely took it on. And, I, and, and there was bigger records I could have done, but I decided to do Dance Machine because it was more like, it's a great song. And also in my head, I'm like thinking, I don't want to remix the biggest song. I want to remix a song I can imagine with my, with, with, you know, with my DNA in it. And I was like, okay, this one I could I can start wrapping my head around. And then finally I got to the point where I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go funk with it. I'm not gonna go hard with it. I wanna make a palatable, listenable remix um, that's funky and fun. So finally I get there, I'm like, okay, I think I'm ready, and I dropped it. And it just it just didn't hit the nail on the head. You know, it, it was fun, it was cool. It is it, like I hear, I'm like, okay, for what it was, it was good, but it just didn't hit the nail on the head. And I felt like I missed that 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 shot, like what Eminem says, you only got one shot, and I like missed it. Like I got that golden opportunity, and I just like failed on it. I did that before with Drake too. I remixed a Drake re record that he gave me, and I and I failed on that one. Like it just, it just didn't sound like it just didn't last the test of time, you know. But with the uh, Michael Jackson one, after you got that feedback. You then go to your studio, I believe, and take me through this meditative reset that you did. The fact that I was, it was in my studio. The pressure at that time was way too much. And that, that's a time when I'm like, I really need to just hone in on this one. I really need to just stop being so starstruck about this and like stop, reset, and meditate. I remember what was so kind of haunting and special and brought me back to when I was a kid was hearing all the ad-libs. Hearing his, him breathing in the microphone, him talking to the engineer, the, drum, the drumstick clicks, like all these sounds. It's just as if Michael Jackson was in the room with me. Like no joke. It was, like I would hear that and I would just get tingles. It was such a special thing. When you have this kind of pressure, it's, it's a lot of anxiety. The discomfort and the, that, that's happening there, that's when the real growing starts. That's when you really are changing and adapting and learning. And, and I, I learned a lot in that. There's so many artists you've collaborated with over the years, but one person you've in, in, engaged with that I was curious to bring up, uh, Kanye West. You first, I think, met him in 2006. One day you're uh, touring in England and you get a call. Take it from there. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm in the car with my uh, manager, my late manager who passed away last year. Uh, and and Kanye's calling me. And, you know, it's, it's Kanye West Pubble pops up. And, and we're already talking. We're already friendly. And he's like, yo, I, I just want to, I have this, uh, this, um, this idea down. Like, you want to hear it? And I'm like, yes, of course. And so he starts rapping uh, acapella over the phone, and I just couldn't believe what I was, I can't believe, like this never happened before. No one just called me up to get their, my advice on their 
freestyle and I'm listening. I'm just like, oh my God, this is just like, a f this is, this is so cool. And I remember what he said. I remembered his lyrics because how can you not? You're like, you're so engaged at that moment. So we end the call and then on another storyline, I was walking through SLS and, and Drake pulls up next to me. He's like, yo, Aoki. I'm like, I didn't realize it was Drake and I'm on my Blackberry, Aoki. And I look up, I'm like, oh, shit, Drake, what's up? So we started talking and we, we, you know, talked a little more and I'm like, yo, I'd love to do music with you, man. Like anything, like remix, whatever, whatever you need. And he's like, talk to my guy. So I talked to his guy and he's like, hey, um, yeah, we have this record coming out and why don't you try remixing it? So he, he sent me, it got, we got each other's contact. He sent me the stems and I'm listening. I'm like, holy shit, it's Drake, it's Eminem, it's Lil Wayne and it's Kanye West on this track. You have the biggest rappers, at, like, I mean, even, I would say at that time, but like probably ever, all on one track. I have, I have, I can remix the biggest voices of my, my career. And I have the opportunity, I'm not gonna do it. So, and then I listen to Kanye's verse and I'm like, that's the same one he was singing me in the, in the, in the <laughs> car. How crazy is that? What a small world. And so I, you know, started working on the track with a remix and, uh, Eventually I finished it and I sent it back and you know, I played it out. It never actually ever came out because it just wasn't that good. Sad, sad to say, you know, but that's life. You know, I had the opportunity. It wasn't good at the time. You know, if they give me the opportunity now, it'd be a different story, but that's just how it is. Career's not without injuries. I understand you've ringing in one ear, you had vocal cord surgery. Yeah. Uh, which ones affected you the most? The, the tinnitus in my left ear, now like I have a little bit on my right, is just part of life. I've, I've learned to live with it, so don't let it bother me. Uh, the vocal cords, it's a performance issue. It, it's, a, it's weak. So since my surgery here, um, I've, you know, I, I, I tend to lose my voice a lot faster. It's, um, you know, it, it is, it's a muscle that you have to strengthen. And you know, I'm using the mic a lot. It is definitely a big tool for my show constantly on the mic, you know, singing or having fun with the crowd. I'm tuning it up, being, you know, more mindful about it, and I could, I could still, I could still push it. Are there exercises you do? Yeah, yeah, like, you know, all the exercises that, that, that vocalists pr properly do before shows. Yeah. I used to do it every show. I don't do them anymore. I should probably pick that back up, you know. There's so much discipline in, into the things that you do in order to do it for a long time. DJ AM, what was your reaction when he first started showing up to your parties? Well, DJ AM, he was the king of DJs. For what we did, he was, there's no one bigger. When you have like the greatest of what you do walking in the room, it's like you're shook, you know? He was the best, he was the biggest, but he was also incredibly humble. And I thought that was so cool. Like the biggest and the best person in my world is humble and learning. And he came to listen, to learn. So he was coming to like see the artists and see the other DJs. And I just like, I, I felt so like just honored to have him there. And his humility allowed for me to become friends with him. And then we became like best friends. And we started a party together in the whole nine yards and it just yeah, was so special. How, how did that evolve into Banana Split and some of the best young artists?
came to perform there. Exactly. So like we had the Denmark Tuesdays going on and that was purely like, a, you know, I mean, we had like Kate Cuddy there with uh, like Boys Noise and like the Ed Banger crew and, and Daft Punk, you know, DJing without their mask, which was like an epic, epic night. Am and I were like, we should do another party on Sundays at his club at LAX, you know, and it was so cool. Like, but, but with Am, he brings in a whole different, you know, list of people. He's the celebrity guy. He brings in the pop world. So when Lady Gaga's first tour came through, she played at Banana Split and at, at Denmark Tuesdays. Like Paris Hilton was always going there, Lindsay Lohan, like that, like the so LA socialite circle of what that was at that time. They were all going to Banana Split. In what way did he kind of grow to serve as a mentor and life coach? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is like outside of just being an incredible DJ, he was just like an incredible human being, period. And um, he was a, a big AA advocate. And with that philosophy comes just this nurturing attitude towards others. And that's what he was. He was always available for his, the people that he cared about. So I can call him at four in the morning and he'd pick up the phone and be like, hey, everything all good? And having a friend that actually did that was very rare. I didn't, actually, I didn't know anyone else that would actually do that. And then you find out this person that's doing that is literally the, the biggest DJ on the planet. Like it's, and, he, and, he, and he's now your like best friend. What about his death do you think caused you to cut back on the drinking? Yeah, so after he passed away in 2009, I just made kind of a self-awareness check on my lifestyle. And my lifestyle wasn't consisting of drug usage. I didn't, never got into drugs. But I was drinking every show to get that liquid courage to just put on a great show. And my show was a full-on physical show, you know? Like, I'm going ham. Like, if you see a Steve Aoki show, it's like, a, like I am I'm not just standing in the DJ booth. I am, back then I was like crowd surfing and I was in the crowd, I was jumping on things and you know, like I was just very, I was bringing the punk element of what I used to do at, you know, when I was in bands and I brought it to the DJ set. And it's a show, people loved it. But when AM died, not related to drinking, I just was like, I need to stop and think about my life my future, and I can't do what I was doing. This is a full stop now. So at that moment, moving forward, I just, I just didn't, didn't drink. And now I, I've brought it back because, you know, I like to enjoy the time with my friends. I don't go overboard. Like, you know, I've found that balance in my life. Before when I was DJing, when I was drinking and DJing, I would never drink alone. I never got to that point, but I would drink purposefully. I would drink to like party because I was, playing and I need to perform. I needed to get this energy out there and be like live. And, and um, that, that purpose is gone now. I didn't, didn't need to drink to, to perform. I can't imagine, you know, getting drunk and performing now. You know, it's been like since 2009. You know, that's the last time that I actually drank before I uh, before a show. Your grandfather, he was a choreographer, uh, you know, dancer, Tokyo Stage Productions, he owned a jazz uh, club. Then your dad was a, a wrestler in the Japan, I think, 1960 Olympic team. 
uh, before obviously creating the successful Benihana uh, r restaurant chain. Um, you said he was kind of like the Richard Branson uh, of his time. Um, how so? He just did everything. He's like, uh, he, he was of the motto, there's a will, there's a way. With Benihana as his platform, he was able to host these offshore boat races, but then race in them. He's able to get into a hot air balloon and break a world record going from Japan to the United States. I mean, he did so many things where he broke the traditional rule of how to do them by just doing it. Like, he might not be the expert of that field, but he will put his life to the test just to do it. I think I definitely have been inspired by him to also push myself outside of my own comfort zones to experience life at that level. He's a thrill seeker, adventure seeker, adrenaline seeker. And when he's sitting still, it's like something's off. You wanna experience him, you gotta move with him. Like he's moving and I'm like, dad, hold on, hold on. He's like, I'm going, he's like, you better jump on. And I'm on, I'm like, okay, I made it. All right, cool, <laughs> we just go. So what he gave me was a life of experiences through, through his crazy world. Like I was blessed and spoiled by those experiences. How was he the most determined person you ever knew? He put his work at the top priority of the list. I couldn't believe in the doc, there's a video clip of him saying his priorities were business, health, and family. Yeah, and that's, he's not kidding. He was blunt in almost a very funny way. It's like he's, he's cracking a joke about it because he knows how savage it is to say that. In the moments that we were together, when we had special quality time together, he, you know, he was there and, and that was important to me and I won't forget those moments. In one of the more un unusual stories, the boat racing accident and how you found out about your other siblings. I was so young, I don't even remember it. The way my dad tells it, he wakes up in his uh, After an awful After accident. After really, like, you know, where he actually did die. And they had to resuscitate him. And he wakes back up and he sees, you know, my mom, his wife, and then his mistress, you know, who eventually becomes his second wife. And, like, I love all families. We all became really close. And that's one thing that my dad did with his families is he put his, all his kids together. And we're like, you guys be friends. You guys are brothers and sisters. But, yeah, that, the moment he, he wakes up and he sees both the women in his life, and he just, you know, he says this story, like, to, to people all the time, like, it's like, I just want to die. He kills his eyes, I just want to die. <laughs> you know, it's like funny now, but wow. Lung cancer, diabetes, hep C, cirrhosis of the liver, pneumonia. You made the comment that you never got so close to him as you did when he was passing away. Um, why do you think that was? Well, just like I was saying before, he was always moving. Yeah. At that time, he wasn't moving. You know, he was, he was still. And, and there was a lot more of a heartfelt exchange there. I finally crossed the threshold where he got to see a glimpse of my success of what it means to him, where I think the most important thing is like, I'm stable, you know? This DJing thing actually panned out, Dad. It actually did. I actually am making money. I'm, you wouldn't believe it. And he's like, okay, I don't have to worry about you. There's like really special bonds of that 
that, that I got to experience. Because he had wanted you to go to business school and become an executive in Benihana, and you understandably wanted to. He he to he was go more understanding your... that like I don't necessarily have to follow in that footstep. He's not a nepotistic father where it's like, okay, I'm going to swing you in here and you're just going to get like fast tracked through. He never financially supported us, um, for one. Well, he did pay for half my education. So I have to give him that. He supported my mom when they split. The point is, is that he was more like, you need to learn on your own. So when you fall, you can learn how to pick yourself up. Because if I pick you up, if I throw you the lifeline rope when you're in debt, which I was, you're never going to learn. I never even asked him for help on the debt. I knew he would say no. That's his style. He would never pay just because he's rich doesn't mean that he's going to pay. That's the Japanese work ethic. That's a Japanese traditional father. There's no lifeline. Maybe to the point like if I go to jail for something, like I have to go. It's not going to bail me out. He's, he's a very like hard edged, tough love father. I'm grateful for that. That's the only way you learn is you pick yourself up. There was a moment, um, but I think you guys were in the, the hospital room. You really hadn't been alone with them before. What about that time made it so powerful to you? It was just the quietness. It's a bit awkward a little bit in the beginning. And then, and then like my heart just opened up and I was holding him and crying. And I never cried like that. I never cried around my dad. That moment, I just, all of it came out and, you know, he was just telling me he's going to make it through. And I really believed him because he was just a survivor. He survived everything. But I, I uh, I'm so glad I had that moment with him. It was really, I'm glad I got to be able to, to, to share that. If not for him, do you think you would have had your same level of determination? That all that stuff is unconscious. It's it's subconsciously part of me. I can't I can't deny that. All of his kids, all of us, we're all have some of him in us, and you, you can't take that away. Your mom, who's kind of the unsung hero in all of this, um, how would you best explain the role that she's played in your life? She's my rock, she's my heart, she's my support structure. Uh, she's been there day in, day out since I was born. Um, she's my biggest fan, she's, she's just there. She's always there. She's my sun, she's my moon. And I'm just so lucky to have her in my life. On the uh, money front, because you brought up the period of your life where you were really in, in debt, um, how did you end up getting out of it? Slow and steady cash grabs from, from DJ sets at, at bars and clubs. My total cost of living, $450 for rent. My girlfriend was paying for the other $450. It was $900 a month. The, my phone bill is, like, let's just say $150, okay? Like my little small phone. So that's $450 plus $150. That's $600. My car insurance is, let's just say it's, 150. So that's six, seven fifty, right? And my food expenses for the month, I don't know, maybe like 
let's just give it 500 bucks. That's $1,200. $1,200 is my like raw cost of, the, of my month. If I make $200 to $400 a show, I'm playing, I'm trying to play like four times a week. So let's just average it out 300 times four, 1,200 in one week. I just pay my raw cost in one week. As long as I manage my food, everything else is constant. So as long as I keep my food cost down, the next three weeks, I'm making $3,600. $3,600. Where am I putting that money? I'm paying off my bills. How did you avoid letting it whack you out, though? When but you I, were I'm, the, I'm that... like, I'm a cheap guy. Yeah. Like, I don't need, like, when I'm, it, it, I'm like a goldfish. I'm in a little, like, you know, little goldfish pond. So this is all I could do. I'm not going to go, like, buy something I can't afford. I have to pay this shit. <laughs> Wait, that's what Dan Bilzerian told me even with you today. Like, you were super frugal. Uh, I'm the cheapest, today. I don't say rich guy, but I'm a cheap guy. If I don't need it, I want to spend on it. Unless it's an experience that I love. Yeah. That's why I spend so much on my house. Because I experience this all the time. I'd rather buy a foam pit in my house than a Bugatti. Well, maybe, maybe that's too expensive. Maybe like, uh, like a low-rent Ferrari. You know? Because I love the f***ing foam pit. I'll experience that more. You know? I do have a Lamborghini, but that's because I've like made enough where I can afford that. But in any case, I think you're 28 years old. Tell about walking into the Toyota yeah, dealership. Yeah, so 28. I finally paid off all my stuff. I'm, I'm in debt all the way until I'm 28. I have $20,000 of like just dirty, $10, $20 bills, $5 bills, crinkled up in a bag. I dump it all on the table and I buy a Prius. I had 18 grand. The Prius is 20 grand. Guys, it's $18,545. You're gonna take it? We, we spent like an hour counting this out on the table. Like, they're like, this has never happened before. We don't know what to do with this. I'm like, either take it or leave it. That's all the money I got. You can have all the cash I made. I'm a DJ. They finally talked it over. And they're like, fine, take the Prius. And before you found success, how did you find uh, smart ways to save money for yourself to make it financially? I didn't have any money to save before, you know, I just, like, I, I had to worry about real, real issues. Problem is when you're a DJ and you have all this cash, it's easy to spend it because it's cash. That's why, personally, I don't like having cash around me. I'd rather have it in the bank. I don't want it around because it's so easy to spend and it's so easy to lose. So that's one of the best advices. Don't carry cash. Smartest financial move and worst financial mistake? Smartest financial move the way I invest my money, I have, like, it's supposed to be a, like a triangle. And your safety is right here. You know, the bulk of your money should be in, in the things growing at, like, what, like, 5 to 7%. Safe money. And private equities up here. And, like, alternatives up here. This is the way it should be structured. Do that. I kind of do this now. <laughs> it's not smart, but it's more fun. Why do you do it? I have money where I can invest in things that I really believe in. A lot of those things are tech startups. A lot of those things are things that are like very speculative. I love being speculative in ways where there's like higher growth potential, but it's higher risk. You go to the casino, you win big. You only talk about your big win. How about all the times you lost? Be real with it. 
at least one thing I could say as advice, be real with yourself. If you're afraid to tell people how many times you lost, don't tell them, but at least know how many times you lost. Yeah. Because I've, I've lost on so much of the coin, uh, you know, <laughs> of like, you know, I went in. I went on do Doge, I went on, like, went on some of the stuff late. I got a GameStop one week before it pff, went to the moon. I mean, I crushed on that one, but then I got on Doge late. So it balances itself out in the end, you know? And I invested in Shiba and these other shit coins, and like, I don't know what's going on with that, you know? All right, so, what's your worst one? The worst investment? Yeah. I invested in this one tech startup that was literally, I got interviewed for because it was the biggest Kickstarter uh, uh, tech startup that it, like of the year. It like blew everyone away. So I'm like, I got in early, guys. I was doing interviews with like tech companies. I'm like, or tech tech magazines, and like this thing's a, this thing's like literally impenetrable. It's it's just gonna blow up, and they just like they got all the money in, and they tried to develop it in time, and for whatever reason they it's just like they spent all the money and they couldn't get it out to market, and it just fell off, and it just I lost all the money there. But that happens, you know. I'm I'm, I'm not faulting them. Strangely enough, F and B. They say that nine out of 10 restaurants close, so it's the most difficult business. F, like food and beverage and clubs are like very, just tough, tough to make money in those. One diner I invested in, LA, never received, I, I invested 100 grand, I received 80 bucks. Or 800 maybe, I think it was 800 bucks. So what I say is always invest in the people, not the, not the company. So I was investing in another guy that opened up a few restaurants, Nick Mathers from Australia. And the first restaurant we did was a restaurant called Evely. It's on Sunset Plaza. And then that did really well. Then we opened up a New York restaurant called Dudley's on um, Broomin Orchard, and it's still crushing. Then we opened up a small restaurant called Cassie. And then we opened up, before COVID, Elefante in Santa Monica. And they're all, like, it's been my greatest ROI. It's just incredible, like how well he operates. He puts so much attention to detail in, in the the ambience, the environment, the food, and whatever he does, I'm in. I'm just in. I'm in with him. Nick Mathers, he's got an idea. I'm in. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, no problem, man. To check out Aoki's home tour I mentioned in the intro, again, go to YouTube.com/slash Graham Bensinger. The tour also includes me taking a cake to the face. Of course, an Aoki staple, so don't miss that. And as always, please leave us a rating and review. We look forward to hearing your thoughts on what you liked or didn't. Thanks again for listening and catch you next time.